0: Welcome to The Disappearing Mind, a unique podcast helping you find clarity and support along your dementia journey. Now, join National Dementia Trainer and Coach Don Platt for an all-new episode.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today on the podcast, I am very excited to have a brain expert, a brain health expert that I want to engage in today and just begin to talk about some of the things that I get excited about when it comes to brain health and when it comes to working with people who have dementia. So today on the podcast, I have Dr. Cynthia Green. Welcome, Dr. Green.
0: Thank you so much, Dawn. It's so exciting to have this chance to share what we know about brain health, keeping our brains healthy. And give your listeners really some stuff that they can take away and do. Great. Well, I'm very excited
1: about that. So let me just do a little introduction of who you are. And before I get started with that, so Dr. Cynthia Green and myself met through a mutual colleague of mine and hers, but also I think it June of 2022, we both attended the senior housing news brain seminar, the brain symposium, I think it was called. And so I got a chance to meet her, sit down and have a conversation with her. And we could have talked for hours. Let me just say that. So today I'm going to try and stay on track, but I want to tell you who she is and why I think that not only This is an important podcast. We're going to do it in two parts, but I think that we're going to talk about some things today that maybe you don't hear everywhere, and I think it's going to be very interesting. So let me get started here on the podcast. So today we're going to meet the brain health expert, right? Cynthia Green is a PhD. She's a clinical psychologist, author, and one of America's foremost experts on brain health. Known for her ability to make the complex science of memory improvement and brain fitness engaging. She is actionable for all audiences. Dr. Green is smart and personable. Her presentation comes with style, and it has made her a very sought-after speaker in the nation. She has frequently appeared on several media outlets, has been a contributor on Brain Health, including Good Morning America, the Early Show 2020, Fox News, and the Martha Stewart Show on MSNBC. She is not only a PhD, but a foremost memory, fitness, and brain health expert. This conversation today is going to be very, very informative as we talk about some of the things that she has done in the past, as well as some of her thoughts on what we can do in the future. She did receive her Ph.D. in clinical psychology from New York University. She has served on the faculty of Mount Sinai School of Medicine beginning in 1990 and has served as an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatric. Uh, Dr. Green is recognized as an expert in diagnosing and treating Alzheimer's disease having served as a co-principal investigator on a number of clinical trials that evaluated treatments for this condition. In 1996, Dr. Green founded the Memory Enhancement Program at Mount Sinai Medical Center. It was the first program of its kind in the United States, and it offered a unique and innovative approach to enhancing memory, fitness in healthy adults of all ages. In the year 2000, Dr. Green founded the Memory Arts LLC, a company that provides brain health services to organizations, corporations, and individuals. She continues to serve as the president of the company, and in 2015 became CEO of the Total Brain Health brand and the home of the Total Health Brain program with with all of its toolkits, which we're going to talk about today. And A series of -of out-of-the-box courses and programs on memory improvement and brain fitness, especially for the active and aging person. So not only is she an author, at the point that I read was five books, perhaps more. She's also appeared on Dr. Oz, the NPR Talk of the Nation, has been a contributor in the Washington Post and other well-known newspapers. So Dr. Green, again, I want to say welcome. This might be one of my most exciting podcasts to date. Obviously, here we see she's originally from Greensboro, North Carolina. She and her husband have three children. So
0: Dr. Green, wow, do you have a long (laughs) resume? Yeah, um, it's so funny to hear it read because one of the things that it makes me think about is that I've been working in this field for so long and there's so much new and exciting information to share all the time, but so much of it is based on sound advice that has held true since I started the memory enhancement program at Mount Sinai in the mid 90s. There's a lot of great new science, there's a lot that we know about what we can all do to keep our brains healthy and when we're living with cognitive challenge to even Enhance our chances of continuing to function at our best on a daily basis and to stay well. But, you know, a lot of it, we knew it was and it's getting the word out and joining audiences like this that helped to rise the tide for everybody on taking better care of our brain. Starting
1: this program in 1996, and now we're in 2023, you must have seen a lot of changes. So tell me about what it was like treating patients in 1996 and how you've adapted your program to where we are today. What are all the differences that you have seen throughout your career?
0: Oh, well, you know, I'd say that the biggest change has been the acceptance by the medical community of the centrality of brain health from a lifestyle perspective. One of my memories from that time, first of all, I was lucky enough early in my career to be in a center of excellence for understanding cognition and the diseases of the brain. The Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Mount Sinai was one of the first Alzheimer's Disease Research Centers in the country. And I was blessed to have close relationships with some wonderful mentors. One of those mentors, Richard Mose, who is a psychologist, was very involved in a study funded by the Dana Foundation, which looked at the time at memory training and whether adults who were cognitively independent, um, most of whom were in their mid-70s, could benefit from learning in a memory wellness program. And that program was run across six locations, including Mount Sinai. And it was a program that included wellness training, so training in things like lifestyle, how sleep and stress management, for example, could impact memory, as well as in training and memory strategies. And I was lucky enough that Dr. Mose kind of included me in that program and really just piqued my interest in understanding that science. But I'll share a funny story, which is I remember going to a residential conference at the time, and just to date myself a little bit, um, <laughs> when we went to residential conferences at the time, we didn't have slides through PowerPoint or any other slide program. We would have to go to a department called Medical Arts, and they would produce slides for us, which many of the folks who are listening might remember what a celluloid slide look like, right? Mm -hmm. So um, Dr. Mose had a conflict for this conference, this residential conference, and it was at a very prestigious location in New York. It was a by invitation only retreat on the brain and dementia. And so kind of at the last minute, he asked me if I would go and present. And For some reason, we decided that I would present on our memory enhancement program on this wellness model that we were looking at. It It included some of the findings that he and his colleagues had from the Dana Foundation study, but it was primarily about memory wellness. And so I was the last one to present. I was, I believe, probably the youngest researcher present, and I didn't have slides because I didn't have time between the time he had asked (laughs) me to do it. And when uh, the conference was to have medical arts produce slides, so I went and I wrote everything on a blackboard <laughs> during my presentation, and. I remember at the end, first of all, everyone was presenting on dementia, and there was a lot of talk in ways that we today, I think, would perceive as ageist, and kind of the sense that cognitive decline was inevitable for everybody, really looking at deficit rather than strengths, and certainly no conversation or acknowledgement that things could help, that the interventions that we know help today could make a difference. And the only thing I remember someone saying at the end of my presentation was, wow, you didn't use any slides. (laughs) Oh my goodness. But I guess when I realize, when I think about that story, I think about the fact that what I was presenting was so out of step with the current thinking at the time. Um, And while I have support within my own institution It wasn't really thought of as the centrality of the science, right? The centrality Mm -hmm. of the science was really that the brain changed as we age and there was little we could do. It was inevitable. And I think that that's the biggest change, John, really over the 20-odd years has been the acceptance by the major medical community, by the Centers for Disease Control, by the National Institutes on Health, that what we do matters, that we can impact our brain health, and that is something that is very promising for all of us.
1: Absolutely. I love that story. That's a great story. I do want to say, though, and I'm glad to hear your positive report on the acceptance, but I will tell you from my perspective, and of course, my role is very different. I'm not a psychologist. I'm really a nurse by trade, but I've been a dementia practitioner all of my career. And the story of that is just I relocated. I relocated to a retirement area in Southwest Florida, and really I was just dropped into geriatrics from day one. That's really how I learned most of what I know through trial and error, more error <laughs> than positive outcomes. But now it's really been of huge benefit to me and my practice. And as I oversee multiple memory cares throughout the nation, right programming for them, I still kind of see the concept And it could be the differences in in our role. Obviously, I'm in the senior living role, the dementia coaching role, but I still see people who do not really validate or understand the value of cognitive health or certainly programming to maintain what we call cognitive reserve. So can you comment on that? Is that from the psychology side, from physician neurology, where are you seeing that positive outcome?
0: So I think that's a great question. And I don't know, you know, there's a trickle down effect, right? I am privileged enough now to work on kind of more, what I would say, a progressive side of the science. And so I talk to and work with a lot of people who see it in that way. And I think that even if you look at the recommendations from organizations like the Alzheimer's Association or an organization I'm involved with that I think is a terrific organization, the Dementia Action Alliance, mm-hmm. there's a lot more focus on this kind of proactive approach. But I hear what you're saying. And you know, this is one of the reasons that we sat and talked for so long um, yes. when we were at the BRAIN conference. And when after you presented on your panel, I was so blown away by your presentation and said to you afterwards, we could keep talking, right? That there is this opportunity for growth, for helping people to understand not only when they're living with a diagnosis of memory challenge, what a difference this kind of intervention that's based on lifestyle, this understanding from a more holistic perspective, what the choices are that we make and how that impacts us. I'm not saying that it's something that's going to reverse or cure, not at all once we have a memory challenge, but it is something that can make a difference for us and that's where the science is. And I think that that is a message that we need to get out. Quality
1: of life is what we're talking about here. We're talking about the difference between a total cognitive decline. Of course, that's going to depend on diagnosis, obviously. And what I mean by that is not just dementia, but where it's impacting the brain. But we've also seen, and anyone who's been working with dementia for any length of time has seen people who... Age better, they die better, and their cognitive decline levels because they are actively engaged in some sort of brain activity brain fitness in a structured way and we really see the difference. They still die. That happens. We're not curing anything. We are just preserving the cognition for a longer period of time and that's really my passion and one of the things I wanted to talk about and that I want to back up and talk about when you started the program is that I constantly see vendors and products which I think are great, great products and I want to talk about total brain health, which I absolutely love. But let's just talk about the application of that and the importance of that. So with that, I see a lot of great products, but if we in the industry, and I'm talking about senior living, do not know how to structure that and roll that out as a therapeutic type program. It's not that beneficial because we've got to set it up and structure it. I mean, that's one of the important things about brain health or cognitive reserve type programming Mm -hmm. that are really important. So when you started the program in 1996, what type or what level of dementia were you dealing with? Was it Alzheimer's disease and what stage were you dealing with?
0: So when we started the Memory Enhancement Program at Mount Sinai, that program was actually designed for people who were cognitively independent. So it was not designed for folks who had a diagnosis. We provided it through the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center for two reasons. One was because we had this data from the study that Dr. Mose had co-led showing that there was this intervention program you could think of it as a behavioral intervention program around memory wellness that could help people remember better so we offered it as a community service we held classes where people came in and took the class at the hospital the other reason we did it was because like many research centers we needed to have folks who participated in research as what we called controls so as people who did not have a diagnosis of cognitive decline so that they could participate in research and help give us um, meaningful information that we could use in comparing treatments that were being uh, tried for those in our Alzheimer's disease research trials. So, you know, it's interesting, Don, because I'm listening to you talk, and I think that there's an interesting distinction to make because at Total Brain Health, we serve everyone across the cognitive continuum. So we serve people who have cognitive challenge, and I think that that's a topic that is so worthy of our time in discussing why these interventions matter for people who are living with cognitive challenge, whether they have mild cognitive impairment or moderate to moderate severe dementia as a diagnosis. But we also serve people who are cognitively independent, and that's kind of like all adults, right? So we have programs that people can do on their own at home, my books are, of course, targeted for the general consumer, but we also have these group programs, as you know, through Total Brain Health that are really for people who are cognitively independent, and one of the reasons, or the main reason, is prevention. We all have brains, and I'm reading right now, there's a, one of my favorite health gurus is a guy named Peter Atia. He's a doctor out of California, and his uh, book, Outlive just came out. Um, And one of the things that I'm constantly reminded, whether I read him or Mark Hyman or anyone from a medical perspective, is that a lot of things that we face in older age, such as heart disease or diabetes, these are things that it's not like a black and white mark, like one day you don't have diabetes and the next day you do. Even Mm. if it's not clinically noted, right, even if our labs might be normal, these things are building up over time. You know, they don't just happen boom, out of the blue all of a Mm -hmm. sudden. So the same thing is true for our cognition. Our brain health is something we live with every day of our lives. And we have the opportunity to do things to take good care of our brain health. And sometimes we take good care of our brain health and things happen anyway, but then we still have the opportunity to make the most out of our brain health. And so I think we have to see it really on that continuum and understand that There's things that we can do to promote good brain health from a preventative point of view. And then when and if we have a diagnosis, we can amp it up. There's other things that we can do to live well every day and to promote that brain health. What you were saying reminds me of that saying that I know you're familiar with, of live long, die short, right? The idea being that we want to live optimally in health with cognitive capacity and we want our decline to be very short, right? Those years. And to your point, even for those who have a diagnosis, there's evidence that we can, by engaging in things around our lifestyle and cognitive training, still promote better well being for ourselves or for those we love, even if they have a diagnosis. That's great. Let's
1: just talk about that because I'm constantly talking about this topic and I want to get your feedback on it. I just feel like there comes a point in our health, our physical health. When we age, we get our annual physical. At what point do you think that cognition should be part of that annual physical? I'm a big proponent. I'm always saying on the podcast, it's our responsibility to say to our physician, Hey, you know, when do I start looking at my cognitive health? Let's make this an annual part of my physical and do some things. There's so many cognitive assessments out there. There's so much we could determine very early, blood tests, lots of things. But when do you think cognitive health should start being a focus on an annual basis? And how would you recommend somebody go about that? Because it's not really part of a general medical checkup.
0: It's a tricky question because it is part, I believe, of a Medicare-recommended workup, right? Which would start at 65 But for years, part of the reason people don't do it is because they would feel that to do a screening and to give someone that feedback was very nihilistic, right? It was kind of, I mean, I'm not quite old enough to remember when people weren't told if they had cancer, Mm -hmm. right? I know that my mother had a melanoma when she was 29, and the doctor told my father, not my mother, because you <laughs> didn't tell people. And the same feeling you can get around cognition. And so, doctors, I think, don't do it because they are concerned that they don't have anything to offer. And that just isn't the case, as we know. So, it's a matter of education. I think that from my perspective, the same thing would be true for emotional and social well being. You know, why when we have an annual physical, aren't we assessing not only physical well-being, but cognitive and social and emotional well-being? We know, for example, that being socially isolated can be as detrimental to our health as smoking, what is it, a pack of cigarettes a day? So there's a lot of things that aren't included, and I think there's things that we can ask for. I find that most people are not screened below age 65 for their cognition, and even after 65, unless they specifically complain about their memory or have other cognitive complaints. But yes, screening, and I don't even wanna put an age on it, Dawn, because people can have issues with their cognition at a younger age. We know that in young adults or adults of the baby boomers, there might be an underdiagnosis of attention deficit disorder, for example, where being treated either behaviorally or by medications might help people. So I think that there's no reason not to always ask about cognition but certainly over 65, right? Yes, yeah, it yes. It should be part absolutely. of a battery a, a screening test.
1: So what is Total Brain Health and what led you to be a part of this program and its development? Tell us about Total Brain Health.
0: Total Brain Health was established to bring a lot of the work that I was doing um, in lecturing and in writing into programs that could be run in communities to have more scalability and more outreach. As my late uncle used to say, this isn't rocket science. This is just common sense, good health information that everyone should have. And so Total Brain Health was established as a way of making it more widely available so that people could learn what they need to do to improve their memory, to take better care of their brain health. And we have programs that are taught, as you know, in group settings, but we also have programs for individuals. So we really, over the last few years, expanded our reach so that folks at home can also benefit from the work that we do.
1: Absolutely. And to just be fair, I am piloting the program in two memory cares currently in the state of Florida. And I know there are independent living and assisted living, but then the individual is also something I'm very interested in. But let me just say, and I want to talk about this a little bit more in depth because I see it all the time. And I know we've talked about it, but I want to talk about it with the audience. I think one of the great things about total brain health that I like is it isn't rocket science. However, Who sits around and creates the materials and the things that are needed to practice good brain health? Well, nobody does. And one of the things that attracted me to the program is that it is divided up in what I call cognitive levels or approach, and it's already put together. The shell of it's put together, the approach, the topics, how you would go about it are put together. But I want to say specifically to the audience and to caregivers, or even if you work in a community with people with dementia, I think consistency and approach. Many times I hear people say about products that, yes, I know that. Yes, I do that in my programming, even with the many memory care directors that I oversee but they do not understand the therapeutic approach, the consistency. You don't take a vitamin once a month. It's a consistent layout. How have you divided up total brain health? Who does it benefit? And what are some of those approaches that you brought out that are so, I see them as very valuable. If I started at the gym, I would have to continually go to the gym to benefit. So let's talk about the consistency of using Total Brain Health or a program like it.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, I think, first of all, what I like to say to people is we think about brain health so you don't have to. The science is complicated and while i like to make it sound pretty straightforward you know we consume all of the research we do our own research so that we can bring you effective programs and we develop them because you're right and we've been in a period of time i think where a lot of folks have grown their own programs maybe the science wasn't as available as it is now it wasn't as complex but that doesn't really quite cut it anymore. And especially when you're so busy, we can take that off your plate. We're a partner for bringing that scientific expertise. And also Don, to your point, the training expertise. We look at how often you should train and you're right. The better training is when you're doing something like a vitamin where you're doing it on a regular basis. We have more, if you will, material to offer you to maintain that consistency so that you're not struggling You do something once a week and you're like, well, I don't have time to do it again. You have a constant stream of programming available. But to back up a second, you asked about the methodology, and I would like to share that because I think it's a real stand apart and it gives people a sense of where the science is. So at Total Brain Health, for our cognitively independent programs, we have a three-part methodology. The first is wellness, the real science, when you look at what we can all do, to promote better brain health, both in terms of sharper thinking and long term cognitive vitality, lays in how we engage across lifestyle. So, looking across physical, intellectual, and social emotional well being, and understanding and promoting to people, teaching people how things like exercise, diet, being social, learning memory strategies, all of that, you can engage in that and why it makes a difference lifestyle and a wellness-based approach is central to who we are in addition we provide something called social-based brain training and that's unique to total brain health and we provide that whether you're doing a group program with us or whether you are doing an individual program and the reason is because we know when we socialize we are boosting our informal intellectual skills You and I are having a conversation right now. We have to hold our attention. We have to be nimble in our thinking. We have to think quickly. We have to remember. We have to be verbally fluent, right? So just by socializing, we're working out a whole host of cognitive skills that we don't when we're isolated or sitting in front of the computer by ourselves playing a brain game. At Total Brain Health, we look for ways to use social engagement in the service of cognitive training. So we have ways of changing how we ask people to work together or what they do if they're working on their own to be more social, to work out those cognitive skills in addition to whatever you're formally learning, like a memory strategy. And then finally, we look at hands-on learning because we all learn better by doing. We're more likely to adapt a new behavior once we've tried it rather than just reading about it or hearing me talk about it right? What we do is we provide that hands-on experience. Whatever you do with total brain health, it's going to be an actual trying something, whether you're in a group or by yourself. And that also, by the way, makes it a lot more fun. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So that, that's our three-part methodology. In working with people who have cognitive challenge, we add to that cognitive stimulation training so that we really focus on stimulating the cognitive skills in a very targeted way, For those who are living with cognitive challenge, this is, by the way, particularly important. I'd love to talk about this. I don't know if we'll have time today or we'll do it next time. About For people who have mild cognitive impairment, the real importance of an intensive cognitive stimulation training from the research demonstrating that it might help really preserve cognition for longer, we have a program that targets those individuals with added cognitive stimulation training and also a person-centered approach which many of us who are professionals who are listening or us talking about it as a kind of concept we accept and we know about, but it really talks about putting the person and who the individual is with their strengths and weaknesses, but also with their passions and background and who they are, their likes, their dislikes at the center of what we do to promote a sense of empowerment a sense of dignity, what we ask people to participate in, the kinds of opportunities we bring them as a reflection of who they are.
1: Wow. That's that's a lot to unpack, but I want to get our audience. There are kind of two areas that I want to talk about. So first, let me just talk about an actual memory care. So obviously people don't move to memory care when they're diagnosed and usually they do not choose memory care until there's a social or safety issue going on. And sometimes I see clients that could have really benefited from being in a memory care setting for much longer. So for that type of sitting in memory care, I value programming as one of the highest points of care, obviously quality care and the environmental factors. People want to live in a very nice or premier type community for that. But programming is really one of those things that allows us to provide for more quality of life. And so you have a program that deals with that. But I want to talk about perhaps some of my dementia coaching type clients Mm -hmm. that I've dealt with over the years. And for people who are listening, so now we're talking about somebody who's been diagnosed, they're concerned about it, maybe they're a spouse or a daughter, and they want to preserve that person. We have a diagnosis, perhaps we are in the mid-stages of dementia. We're trying to build our healthcare team. We're trying to figure out what we ought to do. What type of programming do you offer that would be very beneficial to that type of client? Because for me as a coach, when I talk to families, I immediately ask about socialization, what kind of structured routines they have, preserving intellect with that cognition. I would like to see more people see the value of something like total brain health and reach out for it. So what would you say to the caregiver, the spouse, or the daughter of someone? Why would they find value in a program like Total Brain Health, and what benefits would they see from it?
0: Thank you. I think that what we have to offer for someone or family in the situation that you described is a program that helps engage everyone across well-being it's called the total brain health toolbox 365 and we can share a link to it perhaps here and folks can take a look and it's a program that is it teaches and engages across that wellness spectrum um, in the different ways we can keep our minds and our bodies and our spirits engaged and we know that those kinds of interventions support cognition, test cognitive skills and in a targeted way. And so I think that the most important thing, and I'm sure you agree, is to stay engaged. And I think whether it's in exercise or in intellectual interests or in social pursuits, that staying engaged is one of the best things we can do to maintain those cognitive skills and to maintain the individual's well-being. I think the biggest struggle is finding a new way to be engaged. And I don't know, Donna if, that's your experience. I had, in the past, had clinical practice where I've worked with people who have a diagnosis, and I think that adapting one's perspective on what an individual, is capable of doing, but keeping it within something that feels dignified and respected and reflects who they are and what their interests were can be really important. It's not about plopping someone down with a basket of beads, but really understanding who they are, what they're capable of, and being a little bit of a challenge, right? Challenging that cognition in a way that is leveled, and we give ways of doing that so that it is enjoyable for everybody so the toolbox it's a beautiful box of cards there's 100 cards that have repeatable workouts and one of the things we did was make it very intuitive so that it's a great thing that grandkids can play with their grandparents people can play it together and people who are cognitively independent can play it on their own you roll the dice and based on the roll of the dice you pick a card from either the body mind spirit or social section And then each card has the cognitive skills that are being worked, what the activity is, a little bit of the science behind that activity, and then an activity that can be done in about 10 minutes. And there's everything there. There's art. One of my favorites is called It's a Draw, where you take turns drawing lines on a page to create a piece of art together, and you decide together when it's done. There's physical activity games. We have a wonderful video that someone sent us of a granddaughter talking about her grandmother who had advanced Parkinson's and was really not that well and able to communicate. And I can't remember which card it was, but the grandmother started to tell them a story about when she tipped over in a canoe when she was younger. And it turned out she was with a man who proposed to her. And they had no idea that this had happened to her. So it's just a wonderful way for people also to come together, to share that kind of communication and connection with their loved one, which can be difficult. Sometimes it can be hard to know how to connect, right? How to find that commonality and place of connection.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I like about Total Brain Health 365 is that it is broken into body, mind, spirit, and social. And I think that the story that you just described is kind of my favorite way of describing neuroplasticity, of introducing something new that connects a new memory, a new experience to an old memory, and it brings it forth. And one of the things that I also like about it is how you explain the benefits. So can you talk a little bit about for the audience and for their purpose? We often, I think the layperson, when we talk about dementia, and that's usually how it that is, they, they'll even call Alzheimer's dementia, whatever the case might be. But they really just think it's about forgetting. They sometimes approach things in a more elementary manner than needs to happen. And they don't understand executive function. They don't understand some of the different processing skills. Can you talk about some of the definitions that are on the cards and why they would be valuable? Because I think that In coaching, one of the things I see to the family is even if you're in a premier place, if the programming does not meet the cognitive level and the intellectual needs of your loved one, it's not going to be valuable to them because it's not, it's not going to stimulate them. It's below them. And I think oftentimes when someone has dementia, and I know This is a loaded question. I apologize for that. But we often think that perhaps they lose their intellect instead of they're no longer able to facilitate it the same. So can you just talk about some of the different functions that Total Brain Health 365 impacts?
0: Yeah. And I think that one of the best reframes I think that we can offer is to think about it from a rehabilitation model rather than from a kind of traditional medical model. And this is something that others have come up with. This is not my original concept, but I think it's very helpful to think about dementia as something that can be addressed skill by skill. Because when you think about rehab, right, you think about someone who has an injury or stroke or something that needs rehabilitation, you think about addressing the specific challenges that they face because of that injury Rather than thinking of them as more globally incapacitated in some way. And I agree, you know, it's been very confusing. And I don't think the subtleties that we as professionals know or understand is really in the public discussion about memory loss. So giving people that foothold, right, that way of thinking about it as a rehabilitation where there's skills that are preserved. So often, for example, long-term memory is very well preserved. And you'll get people who don't understand, like my mom can tell me who her teachers were in sixth grade and tell me stories from when she was growing up, but she can't remember that I was here yesterday. So explaining and thinking about these as different kinds of cognitive skills can be very helpful, and then thinking about addressing those skills. And even though we might have kind of an overall clinical presentation by disease model, not everyone who lives with memory loss is the same, as you know, as well. So that what we can do is work, or teams that use our products can work to personalize that training in the setting. And if they're working in a group, maybe they try to have a group of people who have a similar need together, or they can do the programming one-to-one, but we give the tools to make it more personal to what the need is of that individual.
1: Absolutely. So we're going to recap Total Brain Health as we move on and close the podcast today, but I went to your blog and that's why I'm encouraging people to go to your website to see what you have to offer. I'm encouraging certainly all of the families that I work with, as well as the memory care directors to really take a look at some of the products and how beneficial they can be. But I went to your blog. So I want to ask you just a couple of questions for some of the folks that might be listening today that are very interested in their own brain health. There's an article on there, three reasons we can't remember names. And that's so common (laughs) and I'm guilty. Three easy ways that we can I mean, that's pretty simple. I think people want to know that at any age and you see that happening very early on. So tell us why does that happen and in what are some things that we might do that's going to help with that?
0: And I just want to add that we can share that is available as an article off of the blog, which we'd be very happy to share with anybody. And we have a lot of articles that are for people in the general public. I think we also did one recently on attention. I just did a big Presentation and we wrote the article on how we all can get a better night's sleep. So names, I always like to joke that when we forget a name, it's like a pop quiz for the brain because when we get a name, we don't have a lot of time to get it. So one thing that happens is we just don't have a lot of time. Dawn, if I said your name, it takes like a millisecond, right? Cynthia is a few syllables, so it takes a little longer. So if I'm fussing with my phone or if I'm sleepy because I didn't, you know, get a good night's rest, whatever it is, if I'm not getting your name at that moment, it's not a forgetting problem, it's a getting problem. So number one, we don't pay attention, we're distracted, we're not able to focus when we're getting that name. One of the things we can do is improve our attention. Second, which I started with first is the speed at which we get that information. So if we don't get it the first time, it goes quickly, and we don't really often have a second chance. In our culture, it's embarrassing to ask someone for their name a second time, But in the first moment that you met them, you might not have gotten their name because it went quickly. So it's something that we don't get because it goes too fast. And the third reason why it's hard to remember names is because many of us don't use a strategy to remember them. Memory strategies are highly effective tools that we can all use no matter our age to help us remember better. And we can use them in ways that are simple and practical where they become something that is second nature to us whenever we meet someone. And I'm going to give you three very easy ones right now. Okay. Cause you asked for that. I I don't have
1: a pen and paper, but I have a recording. So write these down audience.
0: And we have the article. So we'll share that with you so that everyone can have that available to them. One repetition. When you meet someone, repeat their name. So all you have to do is get into the habit of repeating the name when you hear it. You can repeat it aloud, like, Dawn, it's so nice to meet you. Or you can repeat it to yourself, because if you're afraid of looking weird by saying their name too much, Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to say it out loud. But by repeating it, you're drawing your attention and you're giving yourself the opportunity to rehearse the information. Two, make a connection to the name you can connect the name to something that you already know. Dawn, do you mind if I use your name? Go ahead. Okay. So we all know that the dawn is in the morning when the sun comes up. So you might say when you're meeting Dawn, oh, Dawn, like the morning time, or you might know someone named Dawn. You might have an aunt or cousin named Dawn. So you can connect Dawn's name to something that you already know, it gives it more meaning that's more personal to you and it's gonna make it easier to remember. So that is a simple verbal association strategy. We call it the connection strategy and it's a very powerful way to remember someone's name. The third one is a visual analog to that. It's a simple visual association strategy called snapshots. And here what you do is you come up with a picture in your mind's eye for that information. So you just imagine and imagine as vividly as possible a kind of snapshot for that information. So Dawn, I'm sorry, but your name is just perfect for all of these examples. You might see in your mind's eye, like a photograph of the Dawn, right? The sunrise. And so that would be another way of remembering Dawn's name. So we have, I think we teach about seven uh, strategies like that now for names. And these are powerful, effective tools. There's evidence that these strategies are effective even for those who are living with mild cognitive impairment. And so these are things that we include in our programs.
1: I love that.
0: Those are great
1: tips, really great tips. And I, I'm sure- I know everyone's
0: gonna remember your name too.
1: I hope so. I hope so. But those tips are real. And I can imagine that people with mild cognitive impairment, which we've talked about today and on the next podcast, we're going to go through mild cognitive impairment in several stages of dementia as well, and a benefit and approaches. One last question, maybe for my preclinical type Audience out there, 10 ways to boost your brain power. And you don't have to give us all 10, give us the dynamic five or something like
0: that. Again, we have a paper on this that we're happy to share. And I think that the most important thing that you can think about is your lifestyle. So that list includes everything from getting enough sleep to exercising to socializing to making sure that you stay social, that you engage socially. To saying intellectually engaged, and by intellectual engagement, I don't mean doing the same old, same old thing that you've always loved. But to Dawn's point earlier about neuroplasticity, we know that growing new brain cells, growing new connections between our existing brain cells, creating kind of more richness in our brain is supported by novelty. Novelty includes new intellectual pursuits. For example, I tried a couple of weeks ago because my daughter had requested it to learn crocheting with her. And my daughter who is 20 is incredibly proficient at crocheting now and I am still struggling. But I'm sticking (laughs) with it because it's a new intellectual engagement. And I needle pointed, I do other kinds of needlework, but I don't crochet. So it's a great example of changing things slightly to keep it fresh and keep it new. And then finally, I would say to take care of your emotional well being because our emotional well being matters very much not only to our brain health, but to our motivation even to take care of our brains and knowing that you have the power. To make a difference in your day to day thinking and also in your overall well being can give us the confidence to even start to participate and to do that.
1: Wow, those are great, great tips. Well, I wanna kind of wrap up today with talking more about total brain health. So tell our audience about how they would reach Dr. Cynthia Green. Now, I don't know tell us, do you see clients? Are you strictly total brain health and tell us about the website, the resources that are there, how someone might be able to get a hold of you.
0: The most important thing for anyone who wants to know more about us is to visit the website, which is totalbrainhealth.com. It's undergoing a redo that's going to launch in a few months. It's a little bit under construction, forgive me for that. But we have a lot of resources for you there. Whether you are a professional looking for programming to bring to those you serve in a memory care setting, looking to have ways of providing more meaningful cognitive stimulation and opportunities to promote well being, or looking for something for your own use, ways to improve your memory or for someone that you are caring for at home or in the community. You'll find access to all of that on TotalBrainHealth.com. And our other resources there include on the articles that you found on the blog. Those are also available. We call them Total Brain Health Insights. We have a newsletter that goes out quarterly to professionals and a little less frequently, but about twice a year to consumers. You can sign up on our website to be on our mailing list and receive our newsletter. We always share there other things that we find important in the news and uh, links out to things that are happening in our community. Uh, And we love to be a resource for you for all things brain health, and we welcome you whether you are a consumer or whether you're a professional to join our family and sign up to receive information from us.
1: Oh, what a pleasure to talk to you. One last question. Is there something, and I know how passionate you are about brain health and certainly you are contributing to all things dementia and people that I love and I, really am very proud to serve, but is there something exciting that you can share with us or something that you're very interested that maybe is cutting edge or happening or you hope to see it happen? I just see so many changes happening in the field now, but is there anything in particular that you're excited about or that are hopeful for those who may be suffering with dementia or have a friend or loved one with it?
0: So there's so much, right? It's so hard to pick all the time, but I'd say that the most exciting thing I think are some of the studies that are looking at lifestyle interventions as a mechanism for helping those who are living with a diagnosis of memory challenge. I think it's disheartening what progress or little progress the pharmaceutical community has been able to make despite such dedication and such investment in finding treatments for Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. It's a very complex disease, as are all of the dementias. So I think in the intervening time, it can be very important. And there's a lot of investment going on in studies uh, across the globe in looking at the interventions that we're talking about and their benefit to those who are living with dementia.
1: Well, I hope that I get to see all of that. I certainly am very excited about it. I know that as we share this time and next time on the podcast, we can share some of the victories that we've seen throughout our careers and things that are happening. So I am just thrilled to have you on the podcast, not only today, but next time. So to my listening audience, please join us again for the podcast as we continue on with some more specific things in regards to how Total Brain Health and the brain health approach can be beneficial to you both preclinically or if you have been diagnosed. So until next time, thank you, Dr. Green. Thank and you so
0: much for having me. I feel like we, we got like to the tip of the iceberg. I know. Even, right? so. We may have to do a series. My
1: pleasure. To the audience, I just want to say to you, it's always a pleasure to come to you on the podcast. My heart goes out to you. You are not alone. I'm passionate about all things dementia and helping individuals as well as families and friends. I hope that something that we've talked about today on the podcast has brought encouragement on your dementia journey. Until next time, this is Dawn Platt. Make it a joyful day.
0: Thank you for joining us for the Disappearing Mind Podcast. We hope it's helped you find clarity and support along your journey. Be sure to subscribe to never miss an episode. Visit our website to suggest future topics and share the podcast with friends and family.